So it's a pleasure today to get to have a conversation and chat with a guy who has been a big influence to me, followed his work for a long time. I was fortunate enough to get to record on a song with him back in 2020, and I'm sure we'll chat about that a little bit later. But as I was thinking about when I first heard Howard play, I had once heard that the ages of 13 to 16 are when people have their most formative years of their music listening taste. And during that period, for my 14th birthday, my mom took me to the Fox Theater in Atlanta, Georgia, to see Take Six in concert. And lo and behold, this opening act that night was all I could think about for the rest of the evening, and it was Bela Fleck and the Flecktones. All of that said, it's a pleasure to have Howard Levy. How are you doing? <laughs> doing great. Uh, it's great to see you. Thanks for uh, spending some time with me today. So yeah, I went back and looked it up. It was a November 1st, 1990. Uh, you guys played at the Fox Theater. Uh, that had to have been one of the first tours for you yeah. guys. Yeah, that was in the very early days. We started touring that year. And uh, I remember uh, opening for Take Six. That was that was a, a thrilling experience because uh, those guys were just so incredible. Uh, their music would resonate in my head. It was hard to fall asleep after the shows. <laughs> yeah, I remember it was one of those things where, you know, and not to take anything away from them, because we both know how amazing they are. But when you guys came out and played, it was like, I'm going to remember this forever. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I was just blown away with the the, the sound of, of the band. So I'd like to take a couple of minutes and just kind of catch everyone up about where it started and the path for you. I think you were born in New York. That's right. I, I was born in Brooklyn in uh, 1951. Was music present in your house when you were growing up? Oh, very much so. Uh, my parents were big classical music lovers, and uh, they would just play, you know, opera broadcasts on the Saturdays and and classical albums all the time. Uh, they they listened to some contemporary stuff, but it was mostly mostly classical. And my dad who is a hundred years old now is still singing. He, he was a singer when he was younger and he tried to have a career and he had a really great voice. So uh, growing up, they used to have these parties where people would come over and play instruments and stand around the piano and they would sing. And I just thought everybody had that. You know? So uh, it was a very, very musical household. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. I think I've said that on, just about every one of these episodes that I've done in that I was in the same situation. And I thought, I thought that's what everyone did. Yeah. I, yeah. Thought, I thought that every family had a, uh, just sat around the piano and sang together because that's what my family did every time we, uh, we had any sort of event. So uh -huh. I understand. Was it, when you say classical music, was it classical music across the board? Was it typically opera? Was Well, they were, they were big opera fans because my dad was a singer. You know, yeah. opera and Broadway stuff, because, you know, you grew up in New York, Broadway, it's right there. I mean, right. so, uh, you know, you want to go to see a classical concert, you go there, you want to go see a Broadway show. It's like, you know, just a few blocks away. Uh, and they had a friend who was a big time a business agent for some of uh, Broadway stars. And so they would get uh, discounted tickets for those things. And but my parents used to before even before they were married, they used to go on dates to the opera, get the standing room seats. I mean, they were really into it, you know, oh. uh, and uh, yeah, it was it was a very musically reinforced environment. And uh, then I, I was I begged them. I said, I want to take piano lessons. We had this little, uh, actually, a miniature piano. It was a strange thing. It had maybe seventy three keys or something. It was designed to be on a 
on a boat or something like that. Uh, and I said, I really want to take piano lessons. Oh, you're too young. You're too young. You know, it'll be too hard. You'll quit. And the reality was that I think I was listening so closely to music that I was really ready to play when I was five years old. But I didn't start taking, they finally gave in and, they, and uh, started taking piano lessons when I was uh, eight. And as soon as that happened, uh, it was uh, it was like, you know, uh, very exciting for me. And I remember the first week the teacher came over to the house and showed me what the treble clef was and the names of the notes. And uh, second week he came over and showed me what the bass clef was and the names of those notes. It's like, oh, oh, wow. And the third week, he gave me some little cheesy little thing that had played with both hands. And after he left, I just started improvising. Yeah. My mom came in the room and said, what are you playing? I said, oh, I'm just playing my music. I still remember this. Uh, <laughs> she tells me about it because uh, she's 97. She's still around. And so I just started improvising right away because I just think I had been listening to so much stuff so seriously that it was I had stored up a lot of information in my head and as soon as I got the green light to go ahead and actually like play the piano, uh, it just started happening. My teacher very soon said, you know, he should really get a better teacher because uh, I was obviously, you know, I had a lot of talent. And so my parents uh, enrolled me in the Manhattan School of Music prep division. I went every Saturday and learned theory, which was invaluable and had a very good piano teacher. And whenever we would finish a piece, to our teacher's satisfaction, uh, we would play it in a recital. They had they had them every Saturday called Music Hour. And so I got used to playing for people. I didn't have stage fright or anything like that, you know. Uh, I did that for four years from age uh, 9 to 12. Okay. And uh, it was great being in a music school around a whole bunch of other kids because, you know, Going, uh, going to the public school where I, where I was growing up, uh, there weren't that many other kids who played music. And suddenly I'm around all sorts of kids who were like really good. Some of them played much better than I did. So it was inspiring. And I felt like, gee, I belong here around all these musicians. It was a, it was a really good feeling. Yeah. When I was in high school, I did two summers at Brevard Music Center in North Carolina. Sure. And then sure. I did two summers at the Chautauqua Institution, which is in upstate New York, kind of near Buffalo. I know it well. I played there. It's beautiful. Beautiful place. Oh, yeah. yes. I, yeah, I spent two summers there. And like like you're saying, just being around like-minded people are so hyper-focused on practicing and improving their craft. It's, it's inspiring to just be around people like that. Yeah. And did I read correctly that at one point you – your, you and your family considered you going to study with Nadia Boulanger. Is that right? Wow. Yeah. The, uh, the Manhattan School recommended that I go. That they, I was like the one they picked of the young students. And it's like, oh, this is, this is pretty heavy. I mean, how am I going to go, you know, miss all my friends and live in Paris? And my mom would have to come with me. And it just seemed totally impractical and like, I didn't really want to do it. Who is this Nadia Boulanger? And my mom afterwards said, oh, I'm so sorry we didn't do that. I said, okay, mom, it's all right. You know. <laughs> no, what a, I mean, what an opportunity to be offered. But yeah, you look yeah, at the 10, list. I was 10, 10 years old. I mean, you know, what right. did that mean to me? You know? <laughs> That's right. Much, you know. 
and so after after high school, after you finished school, did you major in music in college? No. So I went to school in, in New York, you know, I went to high school in New York, and then I uh, went to Northwestern University in Evanston, which is where I still live. I didn't finish. I only went for a year and a half. But I, and I wasn't a music major, but I took part, I partook of the music program there. Uh, I played piano in the jazz band. Um, that was, they didn't really have a jazz department, but they had a jazz band. And my great good fortune, it was led at first by the great alto sax player, Bunky Green, who was an amazing musician, just an incredible player and a wonderful guy. And after that, by Rufus Reed, who wow. was one of the preeminent jazz bass players. And so I got to rub shoulders with those guys. And I learned a lot playing piano in big band because it's the first time I had ever seen an official jazz chart, even though I had already started playing jazz on my own just from listening and growing up in New York and going to the clubs because they let me in to the places like the Vanguard and the Gate and stuff like that. There was no... Uh, they knew I wasn't there to get drunk. They said, okay, drink a Coke and sit over there. I said, that's all I want to do. You know, so I, I heard, you know, all the greatest musicians in the world uh, after I got turned on to jazz. Uh, and before that, it was blues. Uh, for, first was rock and roll and uh, then blues. And I started a band in high school and we played rock and we played blues. And then all of us got into jazz and we started playing jazz together. Then I went to Northwestern and, and the, it continued, obviously. And that's when I started playing harmonica too, because uh, I, uh, in addition to the jazz uh, band, I also took some music history classes, which were really interesting stuff that I didn't know anything about. Twentieth uh, century classical music, which was fascinating to me, uh, learning about Schoenberg and Webern and all that stuff, and, and uh, I discovered the Rite of Spring. Uh, a friend of mine turned me on to that, and I went, "Wow." I'd never heard that. My parents weren't, their tastes weren't that modern, you know. I heard from so many people that, that that piece just kind of opened their eyes to a, an entirely different world, a new world, you know, after you've, after you've experienced that piece and then everything else that Stravinsky around that. Yeah, it's, it's incredible. And so that overlapped into jazz for me. I would, I'd listen to it and go, man, I'd love to blow over this stuff. You know? <laughs> uh, I could hear Eric Dolphy soloing over these things, you know? Uh, and of course, a lot of the, my favorite jazz musicians uh, I learned later were super into Stravinsky and Bartok and Ravel and, uh, you know, Charlie Parker, Dizzy Gillespie and Coltrane. They all listened to all that stuff. It's interesting. I'm so I'm really into Steve Reich. I love the music of, of, of Steve Reich and, you know, the flip side of that is that he was heavily influenced by jazz players. I mean, he loved John Coltrane and 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 Miles Davis. And it's funny how there's so much cross pollination between both of these disciplines of music. It's really interesting. I was reading where the harmonica came into your life, and I imagine this the Chicago music scene had to have been part of the the catalyst for that happening. Uh, yeah, well, because I started listening to Chicago blues when I was growing up in, in New York. A friend of mine had all these albums of Junior Wells and Paul Butterfield and James Cotton and uh, Little Walter and all those people. And I had never heard the harmonica and I'd never really heard blues before. Growing up in New York City, it's not a blues town, you know, especially in the 60s, very much not. Uh, it was, you know, jazz and every every other kind of music, but blues was 
not something that you could hear a lot of in New York City. So we went out to uh, to some shows in the village and heard some of these guys play, uh, James Cotton and Paul Butterfield. And I just was totally blown away by the bands and by the harmonica playing and the whole thing. And I decided I want to learn how to play some this harmonica. I could carry it in my pocket. I could bend notes. Hey, <laughs> can't do that on a piano. And so I, you know, I bought my first harp at Manny's for $2.25. And I struggled mightily with it. I, I couldn't do anything until I went to Northwestern. It was my third day there during freshman orientation week. And it's kind of a long story, but I'll skip it. But I, I took it out of my pocket and suddenly I could bend notes. It was just something happened. Maybe being in Chicago, uh, I actually had attended a rally for the Chicago Seven. And it's when I walked out of that rally that I picked up my harmonica and was able to play the blues. <laughs> I swear that's how it happened. Suddenly well, I couldn't play it at all before that. And after that, I, I could like within like minutes, I was playing all these blues licks because I knew what they were supposed to sound like. If there would be a time to want to play the blues, that probably would have been that perfect moment for it to happen. I tell you, I, I just, I still don't understand. Some little switch clicked in my head. Wow. Yeah. It, you know, and in researching your life, but I didn't realize what a groundbreaking person you were for the instrument in this overbending technique, this overblowing technique. For those of us that are not harmonica players, could you just kind of give a, a, a little bit of a snapshot of what that technique is? Sure. You want me to play a little bit? Sure. I'd love that. Yeah. So, you know, I'm playing these blues licks and I'm frustrated at the fact that there's notes that are missing on the harmonica. I just thought, like, how could this great instrument not be able to play all the notes? I, I, you know, being a pianist, I mean, they're the notes. They're right there. And, and every other instrument could play all the notes. How come this thing that I totally loved doesn't have all the notes on it? And so I, I figured out, uh, I was in my freshman dorm after playing for about three months, maybe, I, I figured out, well, I'll, you know, you can bend the, the notes, uh, note down from the higher pitched note to just above the lower pitched note on the whole. That's the way the bending works on the harmonica. Mm -hmm. So on the bottom of the harmonica, the first six holes, the draw notes are higher than the blows. So you can bend those draw notes down. So the first hole can bend D. This is a C harp, which... I usually use to demonstrate on for teaching. It's not my favorite key harp, but um, and the second hole is E and G. So you've got all those pitches bending down in G. And third hole, G and B. There's four pitches there. So already, if you're trying to play the chromatic scale, you've got most of the notes. Then D goes down to D flat on the fourth hole. But then you, then you just have E and F and G and then A flat and A. Because you can't bend down on the fifth hole because it's F and E. There's nothing in between. Right. If you F down, you just sort of start breaking the harmonica. <laughs> so there's a bunch of missing notes there. So it made me really frustrated, especially trying to play like... 
you know, the one chord. And then you go to the four chord. <laughs> you know, if you do that on any other instrument, you get shot on stage. You know, uh, so harmonica players, it's okay to play that note there because we can't do it. It's like, no, the only way to do it is, is to go to the lower octave and bend. But I was really frustrated. I wanted to play that flat third up there, the the, the seventh of the four chord, you know. Mm-hmm. So on the top of the harmonica, the blow notes are higher than the draw notes. There's too many. It's it's, it's too hard to explain right now. But uh, this instrument is different in every octave because the Germans decided to play German folk music, left out a bunch of notes in the first octave so you can get the one in the five chord. They put the notes in in the middle and the top until they ran out of notes. It's very random. The top of the harmonica, you can bend the blow notes down in the key of the harp. You can play some blues licks up there. So when I was frustrated by the fact that there were notes missing on the bottom and the top, I thought, if I bend in the opposite direction, what's going to, let's see what happens. So one day I'm trying to bend the sixth hole blow down and it's the lowest note already. The draw bends down the And suddenly I did it in such a way that a higher note popped up. And that was the missing, uh, the missing B flat. I was very excited. I thought, well, maybe all the other places on the instrument where the note is missing, you can get with the same technique. And sure enough, you can. It's like magic. Now we got the two octaves of the chromatic scale. And so it was sort of a mind blower. And then I figured out on the top of the harmonica, you can do the same with the draws. And now you get the full three octave scale. That's why I like a lower key harmonica to play on because the, the, the high end of a C is pretty high. It's high yeah. So then I realized, well, maybe I can turn this into a real 12 tone instrument, you know. So anything I could visualize on the piano, because I, I see it in my mind as a piano keyboard, because it's invisible. Right. It's the only instrument that's totally invisible to the person playing it, beside the voice. And there's, there's no fingers involved. There's no hands except to hold the instrument and shape the sound. So I close my eyes. And I'm going, what am I seeing? After a while, I realize I'm seeing the piano. And so that is what I see when I play uh, the diatonic harmonica. I, and I do a lot of things where I'm playing them at the same time in certain bands, like the Flectones, I did that, and Trio Globo, and my present band, the Howard Levy Four, I do quite a bit of stuff like that as well. First of all, I, I'm just blown away with your ability on the instrument. It's just, it's it's fantastic. And 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 I hadn't thought about the fact that, yeah, the vi- visually you can't see the instrument. And right. what type, is there some muscle memory involved there as far as just knowing the position of the instrument on your mouth is it did you yeah. have to develop yeah. that yeah. as well so, 
the inside of your mouth is what's doing all the work, uh, the tongue and the throat. And uh, yeah, you just sort of memorize these positions, um, just like a singer, you know, right. where, where you place your voice in your, in your, between your chest and your head and all that other stuff. It's, it's a similar thing. It's like singing, really. So uh, depending on, on the key of the harmonica, uh, the lower the key of the harp, uh, the further back in your throat, the bends go, like a, a G harp. Almost like swallowing your tongue. You do the same thing on the first whole draw of a C harp. Uh, oh, so that's a, is that a C? Yeah. Uh, it's not nearly so far down into your throat because it has to do with the resonance of the inside of the mouth. Uh, and I didn't necessarily know all this, but I knew how it felt. And uh, that's one of the things as a harp player, they come in all these different keys. And the usual standard thing is to play what harmonica players call positions. Uh, and so if you're going to play blues, you usually play in second position, which is the, the key of the, of the second whole draw of the instrument. So if you're in C, you play in G because that's the Mixolydian mode. It gives you the seventh, the flat seventh. And as if by magic, all the notes that you need for blues are just magically there as bends. It's all there. Like the Germans who designed this thing in the 1820s, 30s, whatever, they had no idea that no. They, they were designing the world's greatest blues instrument. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just a total accident. It's Man, amazing. And you were talking about playing with the Flectones and then with your uh, current group. And I would like to ask you about that, that independence that is required to play both of those instruments. Because I do, you know, I've, I've done a lot of, work over the years playing drums and being a singer as well at least for me i can't focus on one more than the other i i find that i get in a little bit of a a trap if i overthink one direction or the other what did you do to work out that independence and what is your mindset on that while you're playing that's a very good question you know it, it's sort of uh it happens a little differently every time um but i would say that with the fleck tones it was just, we played so much. We, we played, you know, 120, 130 gigs a year. So we rehearsed a lot. We recorded a bunch of albums. And so I had to do it. You know, necessity is, is a mother, as we say. And, uh, and I just had to do it. And some of these tunes I was playing in all different key harmonicas and piano at the same time. So it's a B, a D flat, um, an A, a G, a C. An F. I mean, what, whatever was the best harp for the job, an A flat. And so I had to start sometimes thinking in relative pitch on both instruments. You know, it was a very interesting process. And I remember in the beginning when we were rehearsing, you know, we'd run over a tune a few times and I'd go, Hey guys, I got to stop. I've got smoke coming out of my ears. I, I, I'm trying to play these two instruments at the same time. And I just, I just have to stop. <laughs> <laughs> one of the things i've always enjoyed about your playing too is that when you were playing with bela that the harmonica was a was a lead instrument but you would also treat it as an accompanying instrument and and you know playing long tones underneath maybe a, a banjo solo and i hadn't really heard the instrument treated that way very much at least in in the the music that I had listened to, was that a conscious decision on your part to maybe move away from the piano and, and let the harmonica be some of the harmonic support underneath 
Well, it's yeah, not, I just I just think orchestrally, you know, when I'm when I'm in a band, I just think like, what's the best part I could play on whatever instrument I'm playing? So I play a lot of other instruments too, even though I've kind of given them up over the last ten years or so. But I'm always thinking like, what's what's the best part that I can play and let to make the band sound like the most organic that it can, and whether that's on a piano or a synthesizer or harmonica or whatever it might be. I try to, you know, find the right stuff to do when it's not a solo. Yeah, you know? that's great. When did you and Bela meet each other and start playing? Uh, yeah, that was in uh, 1987 at the Winnipeg Folk Festival. Uh, Bela was up there with Newgrass Revival, and I was up there with a band called Trapezoid, very interesting group who lived in West Virginia at the time. Uh, and there was a, an incredibly talented woman named Lorraine Dweezy who uh, – just wrote incredible music. It was just, she still is, she's still at it. It was very amazing. It's sort of in the cracks between every genre you could think of. And she was saying to me, like, Howard, you and Bela have to play together, you know, every day of the festival. You're, yeah, okay, okay, okay. And unbeknownst to me, she was also going over to Bela saying, Bela, you and Howard have to play together. So it was the last night of the festival. They had these big parties, you know, and she dragged me. She says, Howard, dragged me down the hall and Bela was sitting with his banjo case somewhere in the lobby and said, Howard, Bela play. <laughs> and we looked at each other and, you know, like when a beautiful woman says that, it's like, okay, let's do, it. let's do it. And so we started playing and it was like, well, this is really interesting. And a little crowd was gathering around us and we, we weren't into the like performing and we just, we hadn't even met, you know, other than hello so I said, let's let's go to a quieter place. So the three of us, actually a, a fourth guy as well, went up to my room and we played till seven in the morning. All different kinds of stuff, uh, just improvising. And unbeknownst to me, Bela was playing tunes that he was working on that some of which would end up on our first album. And I was just hearing it and just playing along, you know, whatever the time meter or key, whatever it was. And uh, it was quite an experience. And when, when it was over at seven in the morning, we're all like, you know, exhausted, but I said, we, we got to do this again, man. Like, so, uh, the next year, Bela got asked to do a TV show in Louisville on a, on a show called the uh, Lonesome Pine special. Mm -hmm. And they, the guy who was promoting it said, yeah, everyone you play with is great. The Nashville music mafia, you know, they're all amazing, but I want you to put together something unusual and different. And he thought, oh, unusual, huh? Howard Levy, you know, and then he met Vic and Roy. And so he called me up and said, Howard, how would you like to do a TV show with me? And I said, it'd be great. And uh, we played the show and it was a, a really exhilarating experience. And the audience went nuts and we looked at each other and said, Hey, I think this is a band. You want to you want to try this again? That's how that's how it started. Wow, I don't know if I've ever heard a band of four people that changed the direction of their respective instrument like the four of you in that group. I mean it it was like four inventors playing musical instruments with each other. Yeah, very much so, and we all shared that kind of uh, pioneering spirit of uh, about music the instruments and the music that we were playing both and yeah. uh, how to make it sound like an organic being and 
you know, in whatever time meter it was and, uh, you know, whatever the harmonies were. And everybody was just really into it. And it was exciting for all of us. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I saw you guys in 90. And then, you know, this was the, these were the days before content being at your disposal all the time with YouTube. So anywhere I could find you, which was not an easy feat. You know, I remember seeing it was on the Jacksonville Jazz Festival. There was a good video of that. I remember recording that. And um, I think I saw you guys were on an episode of Austin City Limits at one point. That was a good one. I think that might have been, was that supporting the second record? I'm not really sure. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was the kid at my school that was walking around with Flectones t-shirts and everyone was like, Oh, what is that? (laughs) Yeah. What is a Flectone? So you left the band in 92. Very end of 92. I played until like December 14th or something like that. Yeah. And I want to, I I, want to ask about the next thing you did after that, but I want to talk about when you came back to the, the band when did you come back and you guys did some shows? Well, uh, you know, there were a few shows over the years where I would uh, sit in or was asked to participate. Uh, but I came back in a real way at the, I think it was the end of 2009. We did a little tour together just to see how it would feel. And it felt great. And then we recorded the Rocket Science album in 2010. And uh, and then we started, we did a big tour in 2011 and 12. And then that's what I was curious about because I've had periods where I played with a band for a long time and then maybe went and did something and then came back and played with them years later. And after we've all developed as musicians over that period of time when we weren't together, I was curious, how was that experience for you similar or different when you came back musically? Of course it was different because everyone had evolved sure. uh, personally and musically. So, uh, you know, you step back in the same stream, but, the, but everybody uh, knows how to swim a little differently, you know? Yeah. So, uh, it was great. And, uh, Bela and I started writing stuff together, which we had never really done that much of earlier. Uh, cause whatever, for whatever reason, it wasn't the right thing to do back then. And it felt very, very comfortable to do it, uh, for the rocket science album. We, and one of the things we wrote, which is called Life in Eleven, ended up winning the uh, Best Musical Composition Grammy, which was a thrill, really. Absolutely, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I saw that you had won, I think the group had won one, and then you won for the composition, right? That's great. Yeah, it's hard for me to remember, but I, I won one earlier uh, for a, a live version that I played on of The Sinister Minister in 1996, which wow. we were nominated for that in 19, 1990 when it came out, but not enough people knew who we were, so we didn't win. In the group of five, you know, but uh, didn't win. I yeah, I imagine it was pretty hard. Uh, it was quite a challenge to figure out where to um, place a group like that, uh, <laughs> in a, back then especially. <laughs> yeah, the category. I mean, you, if you went into a record store, I hope some of your younger listeners know what a record store is. <laughs> if you go into a record store, you'd find the Flectones albums in like jazz, rock, bluegrass, country it would be in all these different categories because no one knew where to put it folk you know it's got a banjo player it must be folk <laughs> music you know so we ended up being on the contemporary jazz charts for a while we had the number one selling album uh, i think it was the hippo album i think was number one selling contemporary jazz i mean who you know i'm happy that we 
we're the number one selling album in something. <laughs> yeah. Genre labels are just so funny to me. What yeah. they where the how they try to define things and some I think it winds up making things more confusing than it makes it feel more organized. I think you're right. Yeah. I'm I'm assuming after the flight tones you went and did a stint with Kenny Loggins, is that right? Yes, yes I did. Uh I played with Kenny for two years and did uh the outside from the Redwoods uh album and uh video, which was a wonderful experience and touring with him was great. And I recorded on a children's album he did called Return to Pooh Corner. And uh at the same time, I was also touring quite a bit in Europe uh with various different European artists, including the Lebanese oud player Rabi Abu Khalil. And I did two albums with him as well. And uh, the great German bass clarinetist, Michael Riesler, an incredible composer, unbelievable bass clarinet player, put together incredible bands, uh, sort of like Frank Zappa and Ornette Coleman kind of combined together. Uh, all this music was very wildly adventurous. And I somehow or other, uh, everything worked out timing-wise. I, I never had to miss anybody's gigs. It was like magic you know, fly over to Europe and then fly back and play with Kenny and, you know, record on someone else's record somewhere. And it was, it was an amazing few years, 93, 94, 95, when I was doing all that stuff. Oh, that's Even so cool. 96. I didn't realize until I was reading ahead of, of us having this conversation, just how many different artists you had recorded with. You have played on a lot of albums. Yes, I don't know how many, uh, 300, 400. I, I really don't know. I don't keep track of it all. On my website, there's over 200, I believe, that are listed. Wow. That's uh, amazing. And uh, because the harmonica, and also piano, obviously, uh, but it, it, the harmonica, you know, gives you an entree. And I think of myself as a jazz musician, but I, you know, I played a ton of folk music and rock and like bluegrass and. You know, to record with Donald Fagan and Styx, Dolly Parton, you know, all these different people. Uh, and they're all great experiences. And especially performing live with some of them it was you know, playing with uh, Donald and playing with Steely Dan. I was like, you know, I was going to ask you about that, uh, that recording in particular, because it's such a wonderful solo that you play on that song. And oh, the band is, they were always notorious in being in the studio. And I was curious what that experience was like for you. If it was, you were kind of left to do your thing or if it was, there were some constraints on what to play on that tune. What was that? What was that like working with Donald in the studio? It was great. I mean, he was a little nervous, you know, it's like giving birth, uh, putting out an album and, you know, you're, you're in charge of it. You're, you know, he was producing it. He wrote all the music and he was a little, little on edge. And at one point I said, you know, I'm a little nervous. And he said, yeah, you know, and we laughed, you know, but I, it was great. I mean, he loved what I played and I, I played really, really soulfully on it. And because he's a soulful guy, you know, it's not like intellectual music. It is, but it's got blues at its heart. And, and, uh, you know, it means something. Every song means something. He's really a genius, man. Harmonically, uh, I put him up there with Thelonious Monk, really. I mean, they're very similar in a way because they're both keyboard players and they don't like flash a lot of chops. But uh, Donald plays some super interesting chord voicings and then, you know, spreads it out through the band and expects people to make the perfect contributions. 
live and in the studio both. And um, so I, you know, I had a ball playing live with him on stage the three or four times that I've gotten to do that. Yeah. What a, yeah. And what a touring band, right? I mean, wow. Amazing. Some of the best stuff I've ever heard live was Steely Dan live. It was just unbelievable. Unbelievable. I wanted to ask you about the, um, I think this album may have come out in the nineties. Um, the album with Steve Smith and O'Teal, Jerry Goodman. How did that all happen? That's man. That's such a great album. Thank you. Yeah. That was a thrill to record. I, um, Steve, put that together he was running a, a subsidiary of a label for this guy named mike varney who had a label called shrapnel which had a lot of shredding guitar players on it uh, and this was the kind of the jazz fusion subdivision of shrapnel records called uh, tone center and steve just uh called me up out of the blue and uh, said would you like to do this the funny thing is that i had met o'teal i knew jerry a little because he, he was from chicago but None of us had ever actually really played together. We had all met, and I played on some jingles with Jerry in the studios in Chicago, but we never played music together. So it was a very kind of open-ended thing. Like, we each brought tunes, and we showed up at Steve's house when he used to live in the Bay Area. He had a studio in his house, very nice, very nice equipment. And we just picked tunes. And started recording and some of them very, very difficult music. And we finished it in nine days and it was like uh, quite a musical adventure. And it, it definitely made me grow as a musician to play on that album. It was fantastic. I gave it another listen um, a few days ago. And those tunes and the recording, it still sounds as fresh today. I mean, it's it's still, it holds up. It sounds so good. And the playing is just, is unbelievable I was I have- an sometimes you know the piano was in the living room and the drums were in the basement and you know we, we started getting a feeling for each other's minds after a while because sometimes we were in the same room recording but sometimes i'd be in the living room jerry would be playing violin in the bathroom and O'Teal and and uh and steve would be in the basement and, you know we're all connected by headphones yeah. and we would change up little things in the structures of the tunes we would just sort of feel it it was some wild stuff that on my tune, uh, what's it called? I changed the name of it a few times, uh, Suffering Catfish. Yes. Yeah. Uh, the, the form of that changed as we were playing it. And it just was, it was great. It's so good. Everyone is contributing so much to those tunes. It's, it's a beautiful collective effort. Thanks. Yeah, that was, uh, you know, I'm sorry we never got to play live, but Steve and Jerry and I did get to play live in, in this one band that we were in. And uh, that was uh, interrupted by 9-11. Really? We were in Blacksburg, Virginia, and uh, the towers came down and the tour ended. Oh, man. It was with an Indian tabla player named uh, Sandeep Burman and uh, Randy Brecker and uh, guitarist Paul Bolenbeck, who's a killer guitar player who used to play with Joey DeFrancesco. And, uh, yeah, that was an amazing band. And it was starting to sound really good. And then it was like the other band I was in, from the mid-90s was Trio Globo. Right. Which, uh, at the same time as I was playing with Kenny Loggins and Rabi Abu Khalil and Michael Riesler, Trio Globo started, and we recorded two albums for a label called Silver Wave. And that was one of it's one of the best things I've ever done, those, those albums. It was just beautiful with the Eugene Friesen on cello and uh, Glenn Velez on percussion. Oh, man. And that was like an organic 
being that band. Glenn writes, Glenn used to play with Steve Reich. I don't know if you mm-hmm. knew that. Yes, I do. Mallet's player, and he did that for years. So Glenn is a, a rhythmic a rhythmic guru, really. And everything he writes is fascinating, uh, including the melodies. And uh, Eugene, you know, coming from the classical cello background, but always improvising, uh, he writes just beautiful, beautiful tunes. I and mean, the melodies are just some of my favorite melodies ever. And then I would contribute a few tunes as well. And so we would all work on the arrangements together and try to figure out how to make three guys sound really full without a bass player. You know, the role of the bass was passed around between the low frame drums, the cello pits sounding like a bass and the left hand of the piano. So it was, uh, there's a lot of space. And as long as we left enough space, the three of us sounded very big. It was a, a fascinating experience to record and, and understand, you know, that um, in a certain way, less is more when we played. Did you um, get to tour that uh, ensemble? Oh yeah. oh, yeah. We toured all over America, uh, all over America. Uh, up until fairly recently, we were, we were touring. Um, and then we did another album in uh, 2010 called Steering by the Stars that I'm super proud of. That was done in Chicago, uh, and I produced it. Um, and it has, you know, the usual Trio Globo original stuff, but also we recorded a version of Giant Steps that is really, I'm so proud that I got to play that with those guys. And it really uh, is something, it's, it's something I was working on for years, understanding the math behind that tune. And we, the version that we did, it's, uh, it starts out in a Middle Eastern rhythm called the Georgina, which is in 10 8 time. And I solo in 5 4 and then in 7 8, and then we finish in 9 8. With a very abstract treatment of the changes as well. It's, it's really something, something I'm extremely proud of. I can't imagine the process of learning, <laughs> learning to play those different changes also in the, you know, the different rhythmic structure of it. Well, I'm really into, you know, different rhythms. I mean, that's one of the things that the flectones was, was appealing to me because Bela was thinking rhythmically as well as, as, as was Vic and Roy in the early eighties, early through mid eighties, I started a band called the Balkan rhythm band in Chicago to play Bulgarian and Macedonian music. And we played a lot, seven, eight, nine, eight, five, eight, eleven, eight, you know, got really, really comfortable with all those meters. And so when I joined the Flectones, it was, I was already very fluent in playing in odd time meters from doing all the Bulgarian stuff. And then, uh, afterwards, Trio Globo, you know, but Glenn's stuff is challenging in a different way. I mean, he was into some South Indian things and, and other stuff that was, would just make your, turn your head inside out to try to keep track of where one was. 
before we uh, end this to talk about my brief experience getting to do a recording with you, uh, thanks to my friend Stephen Fink. He had reached out to me about doing a song of his and then told me that you were going to be recording harmonica on it. And I have to admit to you, Howard, I almost didn't want to do it anymore because I was too scared to sing and you hear it. <laughs> and great, though. I mean, so that was a, uh, a bucket list experience for me getting to put something down with you on it. It was, uh, it was really fun. I appreciate uh, the opportunity. go i wanted to ask you about your um a couple things that i've seen that you have coming up i know you've been touring with your with your group the yes. howard levy four or is that yes. tour still happening or are you, are you, well, we're, we're, you know, we have a bunch of small tours we have uh we just played twice in the chicago area last weekend and then we have a uh hopefully a two-week tour coming up in may that uh will take us to the east coast and the southeast including D.C. and New York and uh, Philadelphia and hopefully Atlanta and uh, Richmond, Virginia. Um, and uh, it's it's a wonderful band. I, uh, Chris Siebel, the guitarist, and I have played together for more than 20 years. He's a phenomenal guitarist. He can play anything, anything on electric or acoustic, any time meter, like any style is unbelievable and virtuosic, like as virtuosic as it gets. And bass player, Josh Ramos, uh, he's a great upright player and a great electric player, which is unusual to find that. And just a, a sweetheart of a guy and a drummer, Luis Everling, he's uh, from Brazil, and he's also a great composer. So we do several of his tunes as well as mine and one of Chris's. Um, and it, the band is really an organic being. Uh, it, it, I just love playing with the guys. We all get along great. And... Uh, it's just something that I'm very proud of. And uh, it's been a long time since I've toured with a band under my own name, like really, really toured, you know, instead of just like a, a one or two things here and there. So it feels really good to be doing that. And we have an album that's a, it's an EP uh, of a live gig that was recorded in Chicago area um, with four tunes on it that we always play. Uh, two of mine, uh, one of Luis's, oh, three of mine, and and one of Luis's students. Oh, that's uh, great. It's called uh, "Live from Chicago." Howard Levy for okay. And uh, oh, the other stuff I'm doing, uh, obviously the teaching. Uh, yes, I I've always taught. I like sharing knowledge. I mean, for free, but also for money. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I've 
for, oh God, how long has it been? Like 13 years, maybe? I've had this online harmonica school through a company called ArtistWorks, which is run by Truefire now. Yeah. Uh, or like the largest company doing that. It's the Howard Levy Harmonica School. I teach everything I know uh, at every level. I have people learning how to play Row, Row, Row Your Boat and people learning how to play Donna Lee. You know, <laughs> it's, it's kind of, uh, kind of crazy sometimes answering a few guys who, who are just starting and then someone who's almost as advanced as I am. You know, so it's, it's exciting and it's an international thing. And so there's really a community of harmonica players that have come together around the school. It's, it's really, really cool. I, I never could have imagined that I'd be doing something like that. And it's, it, the, the company just handles it so well. It, it's, it's, it's a great thing. And, uh, also I've been writing books, uh, harmonica instructional books coming at it from a totally different angle, uh, rhythms of the breath. Have you, have you checked that out at all? I read a little bit about it. I, I'm so curious to hear what led you to, to write that. Actually, I took my son to a drum lesson and his teacher was teaching him rudiments, which are like the foundational uh, sticking patterns that all drummers learn, you know, single stroke rolls, double stroke rolls, uh, the, the, the five stroke, six stroke, you know, all the doubles and the paradiddles, and then later the flam rudiments. And I realized that I could transfer the concept of right and left hand to blow and draw on the harmonica. And the bounce of the stick, this is the thing that sealed it for me. The bounce of the stick is the slide on one breath from one hole to another. So uh, like a triple stroke roll, which is fairly hard on the drums because you have to get the rebound technique on the harmonica, it's easy as pie. So that that the right hand, you know, and left hand alternating on the harmonica, you just blow, slide over three holes and slide back in the opposite direction. You know, and it's just so easy to do. It's uh, the fewer times we change our breath direction on the harmonica, the easier it is to play. As opposed to drums, you know, the single stroke stuff's easier than double stroke and triple stroke stuff. But the principles, the underlying principles apply. So if you're trying to play a paradiddle, for example, which I think that should be required uh, skill set for every human on the planet. Uh, I right, agree. Right, right, left, right. <laughs> that's, that's something that is so hard for so many people to do and just to coordinate their hands. On the harmonica, it's blow, draw, blow, slide, draw, blow, draw, slide. If you do it in its simplest incarnation over two holes. Just with the notes are on the instrument. And it sounds like a fiddle tune. I actually wrote a fiddle tune called Paradiddle Fiddle in the book. <laughs> because it's like the breathing pattern is blow, draw, blow, slide, draw, blow, draw, slide for the whole melody. And then it finishes up with some doubles. Ba, 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 like that. And these rhythmic uh, breathing rudiments, I call them, they generate melodic patterns. And it's exactly the opposite of the way I normally think of the harmonica as a piano keyboard. I'm just letting the rhythm of my breath determine what notes come out. 
And so no one had ever written a book like this before. So it's like, okay, how am I going to do this? I mean, there's no precedent for it. So I just tried to make up the best and most concise exercises that I could. There's over 120 of them in volume one. And uh, evidently, people really like it because it's, it's sold really well. <laughs> we did a, a Amazon Kindle print-on-demand thing. You know, so it, 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 it can be, it's sold all over the world with all the different Amazon outlets. Um, and we just finished volume two because volume one went through all the paradiddles and volume two starts at the flams. And I wrote uh, 150 exercises for the 11 flam rudiments. And in this book, I had a different system. I, as well as just letting being the notes that are on the harmonica, I, I organized it into three levels. And I had other exercises in, in volume one that did involve bending and overblowing, but not that much. But each exercise in volume two uh, is played at three levels. So there's one level of just the notes are on the instrument. The other one includes bends. So if I were to play, for example, a paradiddle with bends. It would have all those tonalities instead of and then the patterns are totally different if you start on draw. So I have a, a second set of exercises, even in the first book, where I start everything on draw, which for a drummer, it doesn't sound different if you're on a snare drum, for example, starting with the left hand or the right hand. But harmonica, if you start on draw, it's a totally different melodic pattern than if you start on blow. And anyway, the third level includes overblows and overdraws on all these rudiments, all these really breathing, breathing rudiment exercises. So you can imagine... This put my brain through some severe, <laughs> severe strains. Uh, I thought, like I told you about my the smoke coming out of my ears playing on a D flat harp and piano at the same time. This was that times ten. <laughs> uh, I'm sitting there trying to. No one's ever done anything like this before. I'm trying to be keep these patterns faithful and move them up, up and down all ten holes of the harmonica and back down again and like and not lose track of where I was in the rudiment. And it's sort of like having a, a very, like a giant set of tuned drums, like a Terry Bozio set. Mm -hmm. I was a percussion major, so I've certainly played my share of those rudiments and understand how getting the, getting the technique piece of it, I don't want to say out of the way, but making that not be your restriction to keep you from having melodic ideas this is such a wonderful idea for a, a book. And I'm sitting here thinking, I think it might be time for me to start playing harmonica. I think this is the perfect way to do it. There you are. You're a drummer. So like this stuff would be totally natural for you. Yes. It's a, uh, and, and the, um, the multiple bounce roll, that's the funniest one because on drums, it's, it's hard. It's like, you know, turning that into a press roll or whatever it becomes a harmonica. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like, and, and what I realized was I could limit it. Hey, let's do it over nine holes. So that way you have to actually count the rhythm. So I did it in three triplets over the nine holes. And then eight holes is in four, four, and then seven holes is in seven, eight. And so it develops all different kinds of skills on the harmonica and, and not just going like this. 
you know, so uh, that was the, the most surprising thing to me was figuring that out of, of how, how to be creative with the old multiple bounce roll, which I first I looked at it. And I went, what the hell am I going to do? <laughs> <You know? laughs> so yeah. if someone wants to buy these books, what's the best place for them to do it? Go to Amazon, go to your. OK, go to, go to Amazon and just look up Rhythms of the Breath, volume one. Volume two is not out yet. We're we're just we just finished it like yesterday. Yeah. Wow. And uh, we're going to get the author's copy sent to us and check it for, you know, the way that the graphics look. And, uh, yeah, my wife is the one who does all the editing and layout and design. She's incredible. I mean, uh, I could never have put this book out on my own. I mean, who who's willing to work with a person on something like this? It's <laughs> it's sort of like Nicholas Slonimsky's Thesaurus of Scales and, and Melodic Patterns. You know, that was something that was so obscure uh, and until jo- and until it came out that John Coltrane was practicing out of it. And then it started selling thousands of copies. <laughs> this is sort of the equivalent in the harmonica world is like something. It's a far out concept, but it really works. It really organizes your breathing uh, and coordinate. You have to force to coordinate your breathing in a way that you would never normally do. And then it opens up your playing. As a result, it, it definitely, that's why I, I wrote the book, because it it worked for me. It, it improved my playing. So I knew that it wasn't just an academic exercise. I was like taking a giant step into the unknown, putting something like this out into the world. Because wow. you know, I've, I've put out uh, 17 albums under my own name, and it's always nerve-wracking, you know, like, will, will they like it? Will they like me? You know, and usually the answer is yes, but uh, it's always a risk to put out anything on your own. Uh, someone doesn't like it. You know, we're all, we're all more sensitive about that than we care to admit. Yeah, uh, absolutely. It, negative review. It, it hurts. It really does. If someone says something negative about your music and, uh, you know, you just have to somehow or other get through it and not get too high for, with the highs and not get too low with the lows and just keep going. Cause music itself is so, such an amazing thing. It sustains us. And and you could just keep growing through it, through playing it and performing it for people. And, you know, the rapport between an artist and an audience is something that is just so wonderful. And, you know, I didn't really have that during COVID. It was, I was doing a lot of online broadcasts and playing, recording with people online, like, like the album that you're on. And it's gratifying, but there's nothing quite like performing for a live audience. And uh, it's that's the most thrilling thing for me. Yeah, yeah, me too. I understand, and I know that we're we're speaking on behalf of the musicians, but I know audiences felt the same way. I mean, there are a lot of people that's that was their that was everything to them was getting to go and hear people play music live. And I'm I'm glad that the world is back to some sort of normalcy in in, in that respect. Yes, yes, uh, very much so, except that that was a time, that's probably the only reason I was able to write my book, because I wasn't out there performing. So this is like, okay, here's a project, got to finish it, you know? Yeah. So I did. Uh, And I also recorded some uh, self-contained albums that I never would have gotten to do. Uh, One of them is actually an album of my vocal tunes. Uh, I am not a great singer, but I put out a book in 2019, I think, 
called Songs, Poems, and Stories. And my wife said, oh, you have to put an audiobook version of this out. And then COVID hit. And I say, well, I can read the poems and I can read the stories, put some music in the background, but there's lyrics for 12 songs. You really think, you expect me to sing these 12 songs that I wrote? It's like, she went, yes. It's like, okay. So I recorded uh, tracks for each one. And it didn't come out too bad. It really didn't. I, I spent weeks on it, and uh, it's out under its own name. Uh, I call it 12 slash 45, and so you can see it in streaming platforms. And they're in all different styles written over a span of 40 years, 12 songs written over 45, rather, over 45 years. Back from the days that I was playing with Steve Goodman and John Prine all the way through, like, today, you know. Did you leave that experience of recording that feeling like it was a massive accomplishment having done that? Or how did you feel about that experience? It was a a wonderful feeling. It opened me up, you know, because uh, singing, I used to sing a lot in high school, but I, I, you know, if you're not a singer, if if you're a much better instrumentalist than you are a singer, not, not like you, you're a great singer, but I stopped singing because there was no, call for it like why would anyone want to hear me sing and the songs that i wrote i would have other people sing them sometimes uh the jazzier ones uh so this really opened me up in in some interesting ways uh just connected me more with my inner musical self to actually sing these lyrics that i had written uh sing them from the heart and try to sing in tune (laughs) <laughs> a lot of my instrumental compositions were originally written with lyrics. And, but it's like, well, no one wants to hear me sing it. I'd much rather play it on harmonica. But that was the, the sort of the guide of, 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 the, of some of these tunes was when they say someone has a lyrical style, it means that they sound like they're singing or playing words. You know? And so I guess I have a lyrical style on harmonica and that's because I am thinking of words when I play. Well, you you certainly do have a lyrical style when you play. <laughs> it's uh, I, I it's unlike anything I've I've ever gotten to experience. It's it's unbelievable to me to hear you play, Howard. Well, I want you to know before we we end this today how much uh, how much your music has meant to me for a long time, both as a as a composer as a as a performer. I just I just thank you for the music and thank you for still shining your light for everyone. I feel like you're still wanting to learn and you're still wanting to pass on your knowledge to everyone and for everyone I just want to say thank you for that. Oh, man, you're welcome. Yeah. Well, Howard, uh thanks for your time today and uh best of luck. Um everyone go and check out Howard's book, listen to his music, go out and hear them. Um, I have a lot of folks that listen in Atlanta. Go out and check out his band, and uh, and uh, just keep supporting what he's doing because it's uh, it's remarkable stuff. So, thanks, Howard. Have a good one, man. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to the Bandwitch Tapes. I'm your host, Brad Williams. The show's theme is called Playcation and was written by Mark Mundy. Drop me a line at the email address, thebandwitchtapes at gmail.com. Make sure to subscribe to receive new episodes of the podcast. And while you're at it, please tell someone else about the show. 
Thanks for listening.